We come tonight to the closing lesson in our series of lessons on the book of Exodus, and in a sense that makes it a somewhat special evening, at least from one perspective. Our youngsters who have been involving themselves in a preparation for the study of the book of Exodus and, of course, the actual competition of the Bible Bowl are now within just six days of that event. And as they have involved themselves in the classes over the last several months, making preparation, we too have been studying along with them. And so tonight we come to the last lesson in that series of lessons on the Exodus. It certainly by no means is the completeness of the book, only the first 24 chapters and even then excluding chapter 6. And all the while we have attempted through these series of lessons to take note of just a few of the things that I mention yet one more time on this particular slide. As we encourage our youngsters and have worked on the puzzles, as we have in fact answered the questions in the bulletin, encouraged them by way of prayer and other things, certainly now the, the moment of competition is almost before us. We are proud of them. We want them to do their best. And we look forward to the events of that day in which they too can participate with so many others, hundreds in fact, from surrounding congregations as they all involve themselves with the book of Exodus. Again, I think Jeff will have some uh, information to share with us Wednesday, but if you possibly can make it up there for at least part of the day on Saturday morning, I'm sure our youngsters would be delighted to have your support. And certainly as a congregation, even if we can't be there, we can certainly at least keep the event in mind and wish that things, of course, will go smoothly and go well. It is a rather large undertaking, uh, certainly, for the Sycamore congregation to put it all together. And as we come tonight to the closing lesson, we'll see one last set of ideas, as you'll note near the bottom of that slide, in which not only shall we see some history, but also the applications of a few of these thoughts to the modern world of our day. And with that in mind, why don't we at least take a quick look at the historical section of chapters 23 and 24. All along the while, we have now come to the point where the children of Israel are still at Mount Sinai. They have, we have, they have already received a number of commandments. Those which you and I call the Ten Commandments were received with great pomp and circumstance in some regard, but also so many other commandments also delivered and revealed to them. And among them, we closed the lesson last time by noting God's great interest in the properness of a society how that they were to deal one with another in a way that was right and just. They were to give consideration even to the animals of a neighbor, even if he was their enemy. Tonight we somewhat pick up there and notice chapters 23 and 24, and some of the historical features I've tried to very briefly summarize with language you'll note near the top of that slide. In particular, you'll notice with me that there were some additional laws given in chapters 23 and 24, and the first of all, you might notice with me, God gave some laws concerning being a false witness. That is to say, sharing information that was false with regard to someone else in light of a testimony or in light of a particular means of law and justice. In addition, God addressed matters of slander. Speaking of someone in such a way that one tore down their reputation, degraded the opportunity that they might have to have a noble reputation in the sight of others. What's more, he also addressed the matter of justice in society. In particular, how one was to approach a matter that you and I would consider a matter of law. Was that to be done with usage of God's laws and commandments? We shall see that a bit later in the lesson tonight. Following that, he delivered 
some statements about treating other individuals in the way that was right. You and I may often think about the Ten Commandments and how that God called them to worship Him and have no other gods before Him, how that they were never to take His name in vain, and many of the other ones that you and I could list. But we might notice in the last lesson in this one that God delivered to them many things that touched a very critical daily activity, such as how you treat your neighbor's animals and how you treat your neighbor, period. What do you do with regard to him? How is he to be esteemed? How is he to be estimated? We shall, in fact, encounter some of that again even in the lesson tonight. Beyond that, God delivered some interesting commandments about the land. Amazingly, we learn, interestingly, that every seven years the land was to lie fallow. They were not to till the land every year continuously. But God even gave commandment relative to the land having a Sabbath year, if you please, when it was to be at rest. Later we shall find in the Old Testament that God punished this people because they ignored that commandment. They did not, in fact, let the land lie fallow. They tilled it continuously, never allowing it rest, and God didn't forget it. Later, in fact, they would be significantly punished in Second Chronicles 36 for that very thing. Beyond that, we also notice that God addressed the matter of the Sabbath. We've already touched upon it in passing before with the fourth of the Ten Commandments. But now he mentions it again and highlights so that they would not forget the interest, the earnestness, and the significance of every seventh day, the Sabbath. After the Sabbath was discussed, God mentioned idolatry, warning them one more time. He had already given them again the first two of the Ten Commandments that commanded against it, and now he directly says for them again to never participate by allowing another group of people to lead them to the service of another supposed God. We again remember that they did not recollect that lesson nearly as longly as they should have. Beyond that matter of the Sabbath and the matter of idolatry, he gave commandment relative to three annual feasts that they were to keep in memoriam every year. They were to observe them, to keep them. The first one was, of course, that one associated with the Passover, and it was that Feast of Unleavened Bread. We remember that some 50 days later was the Feast of Pentecost and how that it reverberates into the New Testament so amazingly. And then the third feast was the Feast of Ingathering. All of them listed both here and in Leviticus 23. And in all these instances, God expected, yea, He demanded the Hebrew males to come to the place where His tabernacle was, later the temple, and to observe and keep that associated feast. After that, we find God giving statements concerning the sacrifices that they were to make to Him. How that they were not only to be offered, but to be offered with a proper respect and to be offered in a proper way. Any old sacrifice offered any old way was not good enough. It had to be offered not only what God said, but the way He said it. And isn't that a valiant lesson even for the church of our day? to make certain always that not only are certain things done, but that they must be done the right way. And following that commandment, we remember that God now highlighted over roughly 12 to 15 verses how that they should ever keep in mind that God had led them, He had protected them, He had directed them and given them the proper course to this point in their wandering. 
And furthermore, that he would continue to do that if they met a certain condition. And we shall study that condition again a bit more later in the lesson tonight. That left us with basically one final thing. There were some warnings that God delivered to them. Stern, straightforward, direct, and to the point, but warnings nonetheless. And thus those who think that God is not a God of sternness and that He is not a God who has very clear and straightforward expectations do not understand the God of heaven. He gave them warnings, warnings for their good and warnings that they should always to certainly have kept in mind. And with that, chapter 23 closes and then into chapter 24, a somewhat briefer chapter. We rather easily learned initially that these children of Israel, upon hearing the chapters 20 to 23 and the array of commandments given, on two occasions in this chapter, occasions verses 3 and 7, they say, all that the Lord hath commanded, we will do. They ratified their part of the covenant. And they agreed to enter into this covenant relationship with God. And they agreed that they would obey all that God had said. In essence, they made a confession of their loyalty and allegiance to this covenant and commandment. Sadly enough, again, it was not a perpetual matter on their part. But on more than one occasion, they fell far short. And it seems to have not been very long into the future till the first error began to creep in. Following that statement, we remember that this was ratified in terms of an erection of both an altar and twelve pillars, one representative of each of the twelve tribes of Israel. And as Moses erected these again, it was to be a very solemn occasion in which they had made a covenant with the God of heaven. He had offered it to them and they had accepted it. It makes us think somewhat, doesn't it, about the covenant into which we have entered with Him when we have obeyed the gospel. When we rise from the watery grave of baptism, having confessed with all our heart that we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we have entered into a covenant with Him as well. Have we been dutiful to keep our part of that covenant? To, in fact, carry forth in our lives all that God has required and expected of us? It is a very sobering thing to consider, isn't it? Because the New Testament affirms this is God's last will and testament, those precious New Testament commandments. Is it any wonder that in Matthew 26, 28, Jesus, on the very night of His betrayal, the night prior to His crucifixion, as He took, in fact, the matter of what we call the institution of the Lord's Supper, He said, This is the blood of the New Testament, which was shed for you. As that blood was shed for us, that ratified or put in place a covenant, and you and I accept our part of it when we obey the gospel and profess in fullness that we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and are thus immersed by His power and authority, and by that act we are admitted, entered, if you please, added into the church. And finally, you'll notice two last comments. Moses and some others are invited by God to ascend Sinai, and a very interesting statement is given. In some form and in some way, they are given the opportunity to see God. And yet, as that marvelous event transpires, Moses, Aaron, and some others, the chapter closes with God calling Moses alone to some particular portion of the mountain. And as he does that, Moses is there for 40 days and 40 nights. And in fact, that will open chapter 25, which goes beyond what we're going to cover for the Bible Bowl this year. 
For the next several chapters, Moses is given direct statements and commandments about how the tabernacle is to be built, the furnishings to be in it, what's to take place in terms of those furnishings and how the children of Israel are to in fact meet God by virtue of that most holy place. And finally, we'll notice that at one point, Moses descends the mountain. In chapter 32, we discover that the people are engaging in idolatry, lewdness and licentiousness. They've erected a golden calf under the tutelage of Aaron. And God is greatly displeased already. And we haven't even crossed 40 days and the people have already begun to break the very first of the Ten Commandments. It is with that that our historical study tonight has drawn to its conclusion. But what lessons might we see in these two chapters, at least a sampling of the lessons, that we can use to assist us so nobly to see the prestige and power of God's Word in these chapters? May I invite you to look at verse number 2 of chapter 23 first. This is the one that Lucas read for us a moment ago. The verse begins in such a simple way. It says, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. And immediately we come face to face with the reality of a matter that's not just a modern problem. You and I today may think that peer pressure is a modern thing, that folks of the long past never had to deal with this. Society, we seem to think, has come so far that we now have so many devices and tools at our disposal that they never had, and we thus are faced with peer pressure that they never faced. We would be mistaken if that's the way we think. Because here, God in the long ago told His people, do not follow a multitude to do evil. There, you see, was that pressure even then to conform to what most of the people are doing. Because no one likes to be considered an outcast. At least from a social perspective, no one likes to be insulted and reviled, insulted and made fun of. No one likes to be cast off without recognition of friendship. Everyone likes, at least in some way, to be viewed as at least more or less normal. And yet here God said, don't you follow a multitude. To put that in our language today, don't you follow the crowd. Do you remember your dad or mom maybe saying something like that to you? Perhaps your grandparents? Maybe a dear uncle or some other friend? Or at least a person sufficiently aged to have some kind words of wisdom that they wanted to share with you and with me? I would invite you to consider some of the following statements about that. And it was this idea that led me to develop the title for the lesson tonight. The Forces Among a Group. All of us who have been involved in some kind of group dynamic and some kind of group activity are well aware of the pressures and forces that can be exerted. And it takes a fair amount of nobility, confidence in oneself, and the understanding of what the dynamic of the group is doing. Sometimes it can almost be too late before you realize what the group has done, the decision that's been made, and the forces that have been exerted. Sometimes if one can recognize it early enough, there's an easier path of escape. What about those things that we see around us so often? Smoking, drinking, involving oneself in various other activities, perhaps of a sexual nature and otherwise. 
when there's a group of a dozen or so standing outside the school and your youngster in mind comes up to the door and they have then to be in a position to walk by that or through it and others laugh at them. Others perhaps make fun of them and they wear that kind of thought about them. They are those who are in fact sneered at, jeered at. It does cause us to appreciate the things that they face. Those of us that are older also realize we face that in a sword and a tie. When there are those at the office, they're gathered around the water cooler on break and they're all smoking. Or perhaps they're making fun of some employee who won't laugh at their jokes because they're dirty, because they make fun of some class of people, and thus they begin to insult. And if we don't participate, our name will be added to the insultation list. We've seen it happen. Maybe you've been there. The forces in a group can be exceedingly strong. No wonder it takes a great deal of fortitude. It takes a great deal of confidence and courage in the stance that we must take. If we're prepared for the difficulty, we're far better to be able to withstand it and emerge victorious. If we aren't prepared and it catches us off guard, we may well be in a position we give in because we want out of the situation, so I'll just give in and let them do what they want just so I can get out of this situation. Quite often, that's not the best way of doing it. Might we give some thought to what God here said? Don't you follow a crowd to do evil. It seems as if no plainer statement of that thought is found anywhere in the Scriptures than here. However, we find the principle stated on so many other occasions. I'd invite you to at least consider some of these thoughts. Have you heard someone say, maybe again a youngster, but everyone else is doing it, Dad. Mom, everybody's going to be there. It does pull at your heartstrings in the sense that you don't want your son or daughter to be an outcast. But it sometimes must be said, no son, you can't go. No daughter, that is not the place for you. You may not understand that now, but soon you will. You see, just because many others are doing it does not mean that everyone is. And even if a large number is, the majority do not follow the things of God. Didn't the Lord say that in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14? Enter ye in at the straight gate, Jesus said, because he went on to say that narrow is the gate that leads into life, and few there be that find it. It is always something to consider, to appreciate that that narrow way, not the wide one, not the easily traveled one, not the one that gives in to the pressures and forces of the dynamic of the group, not that road, but that narrow one is the one that leads to the place that God would find pleasing. As if that weren't enough, might we give some thought to the fact that wrong is wrong? And might we conclude by saying, at least in that regard, that two wrongs do not make a right. It is never right to do what's wrong. Never. And hence, when you and I look upon the dynamic of a group, who in fact may have an idea in mind to accomplish something but to go about it the wrong way, we still may not give license and approval to that. There are those in our world who might be quick to say, well, as long as the end is good... Getting there is unimportant, irrelevant, or insignificant, but that isn't so. It is never right to do what's wrong. Never. 
Because didn't Jesus say it's the truth that shall make you free? John 8, 32. Furthermore, perhaps one other passage. In Galatians 3, 1, as Paul addressed the churches of Galatia, he had a very penetrating question for them. And it was phrased in a way like this. You see, they, though once had been faithful, they had now left that faithfulness and had begun to travel the roadway of unfaithfulness. They were in fickle, in other words. It was to them that Paul said, Why have you left the truth? And you'll notice as he said that, he gave no opportunity as if an intermediate roadway or pathway was acceptable. You've left the one, the only way that will lead to the right place and to the proper destination. And isn't it interesting that in Romans 2.8, Paul laid out courses for two pieces of action. There was a pathway that was noble and that led to the place of God's approval, or on the other hand, and there was only another, there was an ignoble place. It was a way that was enamored with licentiousness, sin, and other matters of this world. And Paul said, make sure you pick the way that leads to life everlasting. Isn't that a sobering, reflective thought as well? And thus, this matter of group dynamic challenges us, even in religion. So far, all of our study and our statements have been in relation to our lives from day to day. But might we give some thought about religion? It's also very easy in religion to do what the crowd's doing. What's that church of a thousand doing up the roadway? How are they so popular? What is it that they're doing that is bringing so many people to come? Maybe we should do the same thing. Maybe we should enact a program like they've got. Maybe we should borrow some of the tactics that they're using. It is very easy for false doctrine to spread like wildfire in briars when that kind of thing takes place. When everyone starts doing this, and when one piece of error begins and everyone jumps on with it, it's easy for it to spread so quickly. May you and I be wiser than that and realize that the crowd doesn't determine what's true in religion. Didn't Paul state that in Acts 17.11? When to the churches of Berea, in comparison to those of Thessalonica, Paul had this to say. <clears throat> These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Question, what did they search? Was it the brotherhood? By no means. They searched this book, these scriptures, for the determination of what was right. And so today, our course of action at Pippin is not to hold up the thumb and see what the brotherhood's doing. The brotherhood may be in error. The brotherhood could be misled. The brotherhood, by and large, could be in error in regard to certain activities. Our challenge and charge is to search the Scriptures and to employ that as our time-tested means of pursuing not the dynamics of a group, but the dynamics of God's truth. Lesson number two. Beyond this, we also notice in verses 3 and 6 of Exodus 23, God's rather straightforward teaching concerning justice and how that there was to be no perversion of justice. Notice verse number 3 with me, if you would. It's a rather brief text. Neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. Three verses later in verse number 6, Thou shalt not rest the judgment of, the, of thy poor in his cause. 
two different sides of an interesting coin. On the one hand, God gave some very direct instruction. Just because a person is poor, don't you feel sorry for him and pervert justice to benefit him. Other side of the coin, just because this person is poor, don't you, in fact, make laws purposely against him because he's poor? Don't you try to, in fact, fill the pockets of the wealthy, put judges in place who, in fact, will purposely take advantage of the poor because they can't afford any different? You'll notice both sides God condemned. There is justice and it is to be pursued. The poor, just because he's poor, is not to be favored, but also he is not to be oppressed. Isn't it interesting to hear in the long ago how God put in place laws concerning there was to be no perversion of justice? There are many judges in our world today who could use a double dose of that kind of teaching, isn't there? And law enforcement and other officials who we have heard on the news who have been found guilty of doing the very thing here that God condemned. Might you and I at least give some passing thought to how important it was to God for there to be judgment, proper judgment in His society. As you give some thought to the way God develops that here, there are a few other thoughts that we can rather quickly consider. In verse number 8, we learn that one of the quickest ways that justice can be perverted is when bribery takes place. When there's a little exchange behind back and under the auspices of closed doors, God said, never take a bribe. Because if you do, it blinds the eyes of those who should, in fact, not pervert justice. Thus, there should be no bribery. There should not be that particular activity in which justice is perverted. And thus, the character of what is true and right is not brought forth. As if that weren't enough, we have some examples in the Scriptures. One example would be Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, when Solomon ascended the throne after the death of his father and he thus became the king of Israel, God in fact approached him in beginning in verse 5 of that chapter and said, Ask anything and I will give it thee. On that occasion, Solomon had the opportunity to ask anything of the God of heaven. He could have asked for a long life. He could have asked for military victories. He could have asked for, in fact, an enlargement of the borders of his kingdom. He could have asked, in fact, for great wealth untold. He could have asked, in fact, for absolute control over a vast, vast part of our surface, and God would have given it to him. But Solomon asked for none of that. In fact, the thing for which he requested, the thing of which he asked of God was this, Give thy servant a wise and an understanding heart, for I am a child and know not how to go out and come in amongst this thy greater people, so that I may judge them correctly. Solomon understood at that point in his life the position he now occupied, judge over the people of God. And he wanted a wise and understanding heart that he might judge correctly, rightly, and with complete justice. Wasn't that a great request? We know that it was because in the verses that followed, God said, Solomon, many things you could have asked of me among those I listed a moment ago. Military victory, great wealth, long life. But God said, because you didn't ask for any of them, but you asked for a wise and understanding heart, I will grant you not only that for which you requested, 
but all those things which you did not ask. You will have wealth. You will have a great kingdom. You will have a long life. Plus, you will have a, the wisest heart among the human family. That was a tremendous request, and it was a great blessing from God. Notice that Solomon appreciated at that point in his life the value of judgment and that it must not be perverted. Perhaps one more thought. God's insistence throughout the prophets of the Old Testament on matters related to justice. It is not a pleasant thought, but it is in the Old Testament. God's people broke this law on many occasions. The time did come, specifically in the days of Amos and Micah, when we learned that God's people did oppress the widows and did benefit the poor and did take advantage of others. And God was not happy. And he sent his prophets not only to warn them, but to admonish them, if you don't repent, judgment and captivity is coming. We all know how that story ended. They didn't repent. And into captivity they went. Just a few of the passages that highlight that thought. Micah 6 verse 8. What doth the Lord require of thee, O man, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? The first thing on God's list there was to do justly. To act in a way that's just. To present to others in courts of law and everywhere else justice, pureness, and righteousness in that regard. In Psalm 89 verse 14, we notice the psalmist David as he joins in this chorus, basically says on that occasion that it is the case that righteousness and justice are very precious jewels in the ornaments of heaven. Might we appreciate that thought too as we look at Jeremiah 23, verse number 5. On that occasion, the prophecy uttered through Jeremiah was that the day is coming when a righteous branch shall appear, and in his kingdom there will be justice. That kingdom is, of course, the church, and you and I lift high today the banner of justice. We do not look upon, in a wise way, anything that would be disadvantageous to anything that God has taught, to look down upon any individual, for all creatures are made in the image of God. All human beings, be they man, woman, be they boy or girl, we, in fact, appreciate that that truth is so evident throughout the pages of God's Old and New Testaments. The gospel teaching of Colossians 4 verse 1 even reminds us that Paul had thoughts like this in mind when he said, treat other people fairly and equitably. Isn't that amazing? Even an employer should treat the employees with equitably, with equitableness and with fairness. And you and I should treat each other that way as well. That means we shouldn't be perverting justice. But rather, we should appreciate God's truth to be found in all of it. Perhaps a third lesson for the evening. We notice that in Exodus 23, beginning in verse number 20, we find this interesting statement, and it is a challenging one. In fact, it is exceedingly challenging. I would invite you to begin reading with me in verse 20 of Exodus 23. Behold, God said, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. 
But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. And we'll pause there. There are many verses that follow that in fact continue this thinking, but did you notice the condition? God said, I will be an enemy to your enemies. I'll be an adversary to your adversaries. If. Oh, what power is in that little word, if. No wonder as God spoke this, that condition has great force behind it. What was the condition that must be satisfied for God to be the director, the leader of this people, and to be the one who in fact would be against their enemies, against their adversaries, and would lead them into that precious place of Canaan? You perhaps and I have often given consideration to matters like this, but notice what the condition was. And I even used it as part of the title. God says, I will be against your enemies and adversaries if you will obey my voice. God has promised to be with those who obey him. He has given no promise otherwise in that regard. Despite the fact that so many seem to wish it were different. Isn't it amazing in our world today how many, the multitudes who perhaps wish, and many of them sincerely think that that condition does not exist. Perhaps near the bottom of that slide, as you think about that many, we can perhaps extend that on this next slide. And on the top of this one, I have highlighted just a few of the ways in which that is seen. How many songs have you heard on the radio that give the sentiment that all are headed to heaven. doesn't matter what you believe or do. doesn't matter if you even are part of a so-called church or not. And many, perhaps, with whom you and I work honestly wish to think. It doesn't matter if you obey Him or not. It's what do you think? How do you feel about it? What's the emotional sense in your life? Are you basically a good person or not? That isn't anything close to what God said. He did, in fact, he did not say here, I will be against your enemies and adversaries if you pay lip service to me. If you feel a sense of nobility in my direction. If you, in fact, feel as if you wish to be considered with me. He said, I'll be with you if you will obey my voice. There is thus the matter of obedience that cannot be explained away, and it cannot be neglected or ignored or overlooked. As you and I give some thought to just a few of the verses that again put that thought before us, maybe we can begin in Second Chronicles 15 too. When there to one of the kings, wasn't it said to him, God will be with you when you are with him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. The issue of obedience was thus directly set before that King Ahaz by the prophet, and there was no explaining around it. Ahaz needed to do what God said, the way God said to do it, for the reason that God said to do it, and anything else was not acceptable. Perhaps a second notice. In Jeremiah 29:13, we have this rather overwhelming statement. It was through Jeremiah to the people that God said, You will search for me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. Half-hearted service, 
basic character of just attempting is not satisfactory. God said you must devote all your heart to a search for me and to the pursuit of that which I have commanded. In Psalm 119 verse 2, we have near the opening of that passage and chapter that God said, Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek for him with all their heart. Who are the ones who are blessed? Those that keep his testimonies. He didn't say those that merely hear the testimonies or those that think about the testimonies or those that give some thought to the testimonies. He said those who are blessed are the ones who keep his testimonies. We notice furthermore in Hebrews 5, 9 that heaven waits for those who obey him. And on the last paragraph in the Bible, in the 14th verse of Revelation 22, we have one last time God reminds us as if we hadn't got the lesson before. God says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Who are the ones blessed? Those that do His commandments. Simple, isn't it, when it's viewed in that light? And so today, it is a sadness and a tragedy indeed to think about those that you and I mentioned earlier, in song or otherwise, who seemingly want to base it all on just what do you think, how do you feel. God really isn't interested in you doing His commandments. Oh, how mistaken they are. And even Moses attempted to illustrate that to the children of Israel, didn't he? But perhaps we can come to one final lesson for the evening. And one final lesson in our series of studies, taken from verses 3 and 7 of Exodus 24. We notice that statement that I mentioned earlier, in which the people said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. And so they professed, at that moment at least in their lives, a full and complete allegiance to God. All that the Lord has said will we do. That does sound terrific. It sounds wonderful. It sounds exactly what should have been stated. But as you and I quickly know, there's more required than just words. The children of Israel needed to put into the recesses of their heart the fullness of the confession that they made and live their lives in response to it, to always do what God had said. It is there that we find a failure or two in this people. We've noted earlier how fickle they were. In less than 40 days, they're already going to have constructed a golden calf. That to you and me may seem almost unbelievable, the same God who'd parted the Red Sea for them, who brought water out of a rock for them, who had given them manna six days a week, faithfully, every week. That same God had said, Have no other gods before me. And yet in less than 40 days, with Moses on the mountain, they're going to become a bit concerned. Is Moses ever coming back? And Aaron, believe it or not, will even take the lead in constructing a golden calf. They dance around it in sexual perversity. They do various and sundry things. And not only is God displeased, Moses is furious and breaks the tables of stones he descends the mountain. We quickly learn that more than just lip service and words is required. Daily, persistent, constant devotion to God is what he finds pleasing and has always found acceptable. In fact, would it not be fair to notice from Hebrews 3.14 one more condition 
that those who are pleasing to God were those God said that have been steadfast, steadfast in their pursuit of my will and law. Paul affirmed it this, this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What might be said of Randy Bybee? Put your name in the same sentence. Are you and I steadfast and unmovable? That means we must not be blown about with every wind of doctrine, to quote Ephesians 4.14. We must not be overcome by the whims and fancies of the teachings of men, Hebrews 13.9. We need to be steadfast and unmovable. Does that characterize you and me? If it doesn't tonight, tonight would be a perfect opportunity to put your name on the roll of steadfastness and begin a walk with God that will lead to your blessedness and everlasting life. If there would be one or more within the sound of my voice that's not obeyed the gospel initially, realize at this point you haven't begun that walk in faith yet, but you could tonight. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Upon that belief, repent of the sins in your life, confess the great name of Jesus as the Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of sins. We see that exemplified on many occasions in the book of Acts as case after case of conversion is listed. If you have done that but haven't been faithful, come back to your first love. We could pray with you and for you and we'd be honored to do the same. We find examples of that also in the book of Acts as well as the teaching of 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9. If we could be of assistance to you tonight, Brother Harold has chosen a hymn of encouragement. And if we could be of assistance, why not now? Why not this moment? While together we stand and while we sing.